Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Faze. In today's podcast, Carl talks to New York Times best-selling author and radio host, Eric Metaxas. His biographies include William Wilberforce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther. Eric, I want to chat about William Wilberforce, and, and he acted against slavery and abolishing slavery. What, what kind of motivated him to act against slavery in the way that he did? Well, there's, there's no doubt that it was his Christian faith that motivated him, but you have to be very clear. England at the time was ostensibly, officially a Christian nation, but in reality, they were not Christian. In other words, uh, French Enlightenment rationalism had kind of crept in, so you weren't really hearing the pure gospel. Most of the elites, Wilberforce among them, were not only not Christians, but they were anti-Christian. They were very uh, sneering in their attitude toward uh, anybody enthusiastic about their faith. Wilberforce had a dramatic conversion experience in 1785. He was already a very powerful member of parliament. He was already to some extent bothered by the slave trade, but he felt by 1787 that God had called him specifically to use his power and his gifts to abolish the slave trade. So there is no question that he didn't just feel that it was something good to do. He felt specifically called by God to use uh, his career to accomplish this. We want to go back and chat about some of the other people that acted with Wilberforce, yeah. but how long did it take and why was it so difficult? Well, it's, it's difficult because it was as entrenched as anything can be. Uh, actually, there are two basic reasons it was difficult. First of all, it was a part of their thriving economy. In other words, it, it would be like saying, you know, like we're, we're going to abolish fossil fuels, uh, let's do it. Everybody would say, that's a great idea, it's ridiculous, it will take 50 years, it, it, it may be never, uh, we might never be able to do it. This was something so fundamentally entrenched that to suggest it was thought to be a kind of madness. The only people who were thinking this way were what I would call, you know, the evangelical type Christians, the Quakers, uh, the Wesleyan, um, uh, the, the, the enthusiasts, as they called them, the, the, the Wesleyan uh, Christians, they were the only ones crazy enough to believe that God says human beings are made in his image, you cannot treat them this way, period. So it was, it was deeply entrenched. But the second problem was that it wasn't visible. If you were in England at the time, you would almost never see an African slave. The whole thing happened where you couldn't see it. In other words, the ships would go from Bristol or, or, or uh, wherever to Africa, pick up the, the human cargo, take it to the West Indies. All of the sugar plantations were in the West Indies, thousands of miles away from where the British drank their tea with sugar. So basically, it was not the sort of thing that anyone would be bothered about. Wilberforce felt that the first thing he had to do and by the way, it took him 18 long, painful years, but he had to educate the British populace about the reality of the horror of the trade. So it, it was first a cultural and educational campaign to get the people on his side to then force Parliament to do the right thing. How important was the group around him at Clapham, Clapham, Colum, Common, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and Holy Trinity Clapham? How important was that? Well, uh, Wilberforce would have said, and it's historically provable, that without his friends uh, and brothers and sisters in Christ in Clapham, Clapham was, of course, a, a neighborhood uh, four miles from Parliament, which at that time was the country, 
Uh, if it weren't for their prayers, their strength, their encouragement, uh, he, he never could have done it alone. He, I think he would have, been the, would have been the first to say that. You need a community of like-minded people when you're swimming against the tide. He was swimming against the tide. He was doing something that most people thought was a typical religious, annoying kind of uh, activity. Why don't you keep your religion private? Who do you think you are? You're going against the moneyed interests of all of England. You're really being, uh, on some level, unpatriotic. Wilberforce needed strength, and it was his friends and colleagues at Clapham, and there were so many, and each of them was, was different. I mean, you had people, literary figures, artistic figures, and poets. Uh, you had lawyers. You had the, 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 the head of the bank of, uh, uh, of England, the Thornton family, who financed the whole thing. But all of them had very serious faith, which was very rare in elite circles in England at the time. We, most people now get political power. They also get the might of wealth. Tell me about Hannah Moore and her yeah. role. So who was Hannah Moore? Hannah Moore is one of my favorite people in history. She was, she's in my Seven Women book. And in fact, when I decided to write it, I knew she was number one. I knew that there was no doubt she'd be in there because she's a very colorful figure, very witty. She was basically uh, a novelist and a poet and a playwright. Her novels outsold Jane Austen's in the latter part of the 18th century by 10 to 1. In other words, she was hugely popular. Uh, Dr. Johnson, the famous Samuel Johnson, said that uh, she was the greatest versificatrix in the English language. He admired her. She was friends with everyone uh, in the arts and culture of the time, very close friends, lived with uh, David Garrick and his wife. Um, very close to Dr. Johnson, very close to Josh Reynolds, the portrait artist. She was part of that cultural elite circle. And sometime in the 1780s, uh, around the time Wilberforce had his conversion uh, and decided to use his uh, uh, place in the political world against the slave trade, she decided, as a result of reading a book by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace, and was friends with Wilberforce, as a result of reading that book, something changed. And she said, I've, be I've got to use my talents to help the poor. Uh, she did a lot of writing uh, on behalf of the poor and made a lot of efforts on behalf of the poor. But she is one of the most witty, colorful, wonderful characters of that era. And the fact that she was working cheek and jowl with Wilberforce against the slave trade, to me, uh, it has, no pun intended, a kind of poetic justice, that you have somebody from the culture and somebody from the, the legislative sphere. She was a, a person of deep faith. That was the motivation behind her life? Oh, there's no question. I mean, I think, like many people, she had some faith, uh, but wasn't really living it or serious about it. But reading John Newton's book, Cardiphonia, um, she she changed, and it became the center of her life. And she didn't care about the London elites in the way that she had previously. She said, I, I'm, I'm at a point in life where I want to, I want to live for, for God. I want to help the poor. I don't want to be a famous playwright or, or any. It's not that she, she scorned that, but it no longer was the most important thing for her. Um, and I should say there's a wonderful new biography about Hannah Moore called Fierce Convictions, which just came out this past year. But, she, history needs to know about her. So what did she do? I mean, like, how, do you, how does a poet yeah, <laughs> make right. much difference? Well, I mean, of course, poets in those days were read. Uh, that's the difference between poets today. Today, unfortunately, poets uh, are typically writing for other poets or getting published in journals that very few people read. In those days, 
writing poems was more akin to writing songs, right? So you knew that uh, they could have a very wide audience, and they rhymed, and they were written for a popular audience. But she wrote uh, on the eve of the vote in Parliament against the slave trade to sway popular opinion, she wrote um, a poem about slavery. Uh, and what she really felt, I mean, so she wrote poems, which were, again, widely circulated. She wrote a cheap, I guess they called them penny tracts, which were uh, just the, the cheapest kind of um, publication that you could, you could sell for a penny. Uh, but in those, in those things, part of what she did was she humanized the Africans and showed what would it be like for a family to be ripped apart, a mother to lose her child. By humanizing the Africans in the eyes of the, the English people, she made them understand that slavery is not some abstraction, that this concerns human beings. And if you call yourself Christians, and most of them would have, then you are obligated to do something about this. When you look back, and, and not just on the slave trade, but on you know, people like Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce, John Thornton. Yeah. What was the change in England beyond just the abolition of slavery? Well, this is what's so fascinating to me is, is that, and I've been writing about it everywhere, you, you have the, another person in my Seven Women book is Susanna Wesley, who is the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She was the kind of mother, you know, some geniuses just arise out of nowhere. She raised her nine children or 10 children in such a way that when you see the life of John and Charles Wesley, you know they never would have been able to do what they did without Susanna Wesley. So these two men, along with George Whitfield, brought about uh, a great awakening. There's simply no doubt that the, the, the spiritual climate of, of England was dark. Uh, it was not at all Christian. The poor were left to suffer. There was no... Um, People didn't have a heart for the poor. The wealthy thought, I'm wealthy because I deserve to be wealthy. And it was almost like an Eastern idea that, that they're suffering because they're working out their karma. Now, we don't want to mess that up, so we won't help them. We'll let them suffer. This was the mindset of the wealthy. So the wealthy spent all of their wealth on themselves, and they didn't even have an idea that they should have an obligation to help the poor, to change the child labor laws. So what Wilberforce did with this group uh, at Clapham was he began to create a community and a way of thinking in elite circles that was uh, outspokenly Christian, but even for those who were not uh, evangelical Christians um, or uh, you know, Wesleyan Methodists, there still became this cultural idea that we're supposed to help the poor, we're supposed to help the, the, those in prison, we're, suppo we're supposed to, somehow we're supposed to do these things, and it became culturally fashionable to be good, to do good. It was precisely the opposite before Wilberforce. So, so things changed so that you get ultimately what we call the Victorian era, where everybody's trying to outdo each other in, in doing good in such a way that we mock it today. But when you see the sea change, it's, it, it couldn't be more dramatic. The interesting thing is the sea change. Often people think about Christian faith and people following Jesus as yeah. making people more pious. Yeah. But what you're saying is it actually made them more caring. Well, it, it did everything. The, 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 something happened, I would say, uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, where the, those two parts of the gospel were uh, horrifyingly split. Um, will before, today, we, we have lots of people who know they're supposed to do good, but if you really push them on why 
they just say, well, it's obvious. They don't have an answer, right? I would say it's because God created me to do this for my fellow man, to, to love my fellow man. Uh, I don't know why, other than that, it's not a utilitarian thing. It's not a, you know, it, so you, you had a time where Wilberforce and his friends, they existed before the split. So people became more pious and more outward reaching to the poor and others. In other words, you had both together. So we all have heard the phrase to be in the world, but not of it. They were exceedingly in the world. They did not shrink from the world, but they were neither of the world. So this was problematic, I think, for a lot of the elites. They said Wilberforce is still witty and he's still uh, fun and uh, he doesn't judge. He's not a pious moralist. And yet he's working with all his might and main for the African slaves. Why is he doing this? In other words, it, I think it got under the skin of, of people and began to show them that these two things must go together. If you say you're a Christian but you're not doing good, you shouldn't say you're a Christian, you're a hypocrite. So somehow um, it, it did something. You'll, you'll always have people who are pious and religious in the negative sense. They, they will always exist. You'll always have people uh, doing good and doing evil for various reasons. But what Wilberforce did is he made the whole nation's conscience uh, awakened, I think. In fact, I go so far in my book as to say that he sort of created our idea of a social conscience. That before Wilberforce, the, there are very few examples of, of an entire culture feeling we must do good for the poor or whatever. Now, it's all over the, the Jewish scriptures, of course, but most cultures um, didn't abide by the Jewish scriptures. So Wilberforce is the one that we can credit historically with pulling these ideas from the scriptures into the mainstream of Western culture so that he didn't only lead the way to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire, but all through the West. I mean, all of the great powers of, of the West eventually followed. And so uh, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass looked to Wilberforce as the great pioneer, because before Wilberforce, there was no champion of this. So he changed so much that it, it becomes difficult even to, to talk about it. Enjoying this podcast, Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. Let me just kind of shift, as it were, into the area of leadership, because Wilberforce and the people around him were leaders in their yeah. own right, and they, but their leadership model came out of the person of Jesus. If, if, we, if you were to reflect on the person of Jesus as a leadership model, yeah. what are the things that Jesus stood for in the area of leadership? I mean, th just think of this for a moment. Jesus, uh, God played a trick on the whole world because he had, since he created the universe, he knew and since he created us in his image, he knew the secret uh, and all the secrets of the universe. So he comes into the world as a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago and in, in a way starts handing out these golden keys to locks that people didn't know existed. And he says things like, uh, love your enemies. He says things like, uh, the, the greatest of all is the servant of all. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. In other words, he introduced these paradoxes which must have been maddening because they knew, people knew, since we're creating the image of God, people instantly knew that's correct. But 
it's, it turns everything upside down. What do we do with it? He understood the one thing um, that, as I say, he says, the secret at the heart of the universe. When you love someone, something happens so that their response is one of gratitude, rather than if you judge someone and say, you should do this, it's completely the opposite. In other words, if you want someone uh, to do something, if you love them, in a way you motivate them. Now Jesus, by dying for us, that's the ultimate literal expression in history of this idea. But the idea is still the same. To wash the feet of a slave, to wash the feet of those who are beneath you, is to show the world this is the secret to leadership. That I, Here's the way I put it in my family, right? I say to my daughter, okay, listen, I've got a, you've got a problem, okay? Here's the problem. Here's why you must listen to me. I would die for you in a millisecond. I would suffer a thousand deaths for you, right? So no pressure, right? I have moral authority because I know that I love you totally, completely. Jesus really made it possible for people to understand that if you love radically, you in a way put people in your debt in, in, in a way that they want to respond with gratitude. So when you see a leader who actually you know, works harder and would do more than you would do, it inspires you because you say, well, look, he's He's killing himself, you know, or, or if you see a general who would die for his men, how do the men respond? This is the secret at the heart of humanity. And Jesus introduces this idea, and it sort of blows apart history. I mean, it's, it's, it's so powerful, but, but as I say, it's almost like it was, a, it, was, it was kind of like a dirty trick, you know, because God happened to know the secret to how human beings work. And he comes down and he introduces it and it revolutionizes history. It, it's, it's in a lot of our culture now. It's in our movies, the sacrificial kind of hero, yeah. et cetera. But yeah. in Jesus' day, that wasn't necessarily the case, was it? That, well, that's the point. In other words, you've got, you've got these different models. One model is, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the military term would, would be uh, shock and awe, right? The shock and awe. Now, it's not to say that that doesn't have a place, right? In other words, if somebody's about to kill you, you can pray for them, you can do all kinds of things, but you, you, you might want to scream or blow a whistle. In other words, there's a, there's a place, it's not that there's no place for uh, guns or military or screaming or whatever, but the point is Jesus said there's also another way. And this other way may in many cases be much more effective. And uh, the first way may be not only uh, ineffective, but it may be harmful. And so the only model of leadership that existed was, you know, crush your enemies and uh, roll, roll forward. And Jesus, he changed that. He basically said, we're supposed to love our enemies. And that puts everybody, you know, it stops everyone because the last thing people normally would think of to do is to love their enemies. So you suddenly think, well, what does he mean by that? And what, is he do what he's doing is he's making me understand that I'm no better than my enemy. I just maybe have been blessed to know something that they don't know. And so I've got to treat them the way I would want them to be treated if the shoe were on the other foot. And he's saying, you're all my children and I want you to treat each other this way. Uh, even if someone is wrong. Now, Wilberforce knew that the people promoting the slave trade were wrong. There was no, he couldn't say, oh, who am I to judge? Of course he judged, because he cared about the suffering Africans. But he said, if I come across only as a pious moralist and pretend that I'm not culpable, I have benefited from this economy. I have benefited. So I have to have a humility, and that humility changes 
everything. So Wilberforce really did love his enemies, and people commented on that. He could have slayed them with his tongue. He was very witty, and he used to do that. But when he became a Christian, uh, that changed. And I have to say that, uh, you know, it's such a radical idea, but where does it come from? It comes from Jesus. Now, you know, Jesus didn't exactly invent it 2,000 years ago. It comes from the, the, the scriptures. It's Yahweh. It's the God of the scriptures. But Jesus really brought it uh, into the mainstream and introduced it to the Gentiles and to the whole world. In our culture today, where there's obviously lots of people who follow Jesus, but lots of people don't, where do you see that idea of humility playing itself out in popular culture in a way that surprises people and they wouldn't even know they're doing it? Where do I see the idea of humility playing yes, itself and, in popular culture? and that culture? servant leadership and the idea of serving, which is not something that we've... Um, I, I would have to think hard about that. I think that it's, it's not... At this point uh, in our culture, it's very rare to see that. I'm very sorry to say. And, and, and as I said earlier, it's not to say that there is no place for bluster, uh, even sometimes for, for uh, sword rattling. Those things may have a place. But love and, and humility, uh, I, I think part of the problem is that uh, it's easy to equate love and humility uh, with being unable to say this is good and this is bad. I think that, that in a funny way, uh, when we today say, uh, I'm not supposed to judge, we, we can take that, even that idea too far so that we stretch it beyond. I mean, of course, God says this is evil and this is good and you must choose between evil and good. And, and I think that um, we don't have so many examples. I'm sure if I think I can come up with some, but uh, that it's not courant in our Western culture today to see humility. There's a lot of trash talking. There's a lot of vulgar chest beating uh, in the culture, in the rap culture, in the hip hop culture. It's kind of the thing. There are few people, uh, I think, you know, uh, who aren't that way. And when you see them, it is, it's actually startling. Uh, so I, forgive me for not thinking of any it's examples. It's okay, let me, ju ju changing gears. What, what, is a, what does a society need for a robust uh, uh, democracy to work? Oh man, did you hear that question? <laughs> um, I've literally just finished the manuscript to a book about America where I talk about this issue. Um, I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> but democracy at its core is self-government. Self-government means that somehow we have the ability to govern ourselves. We don't need powerful forces in government governing us, we will do most of it ourselves. The question is how? It never happened before in the history of the world, really, until 1776, when the founders uh, of the United States had this crazy idea that it might be possible to do this, not in theory, but to actually do it. The way they did it, the secret answer to this conundrum. The secret answer was religion, God, and faith. The, what Oz Guinness famously calls the uh, golden triangle of freedom. He said that in order to have um, freedom, you, you have to have uh, virtue. Because if we're going to govern ourselves, we have to say, I don't need more policemen and more people. I, I won't steal because I believe it's wrong to steal. I need to be virtuous. So on balance, John Adams said th this constitution will 
work only for uh, a moral and religious populace. It will only work if the people actually govern themselves. We can only have little government, we can only have self-government and real democracy if the people genuinely govern themselves. So it's up to the people. If the people don't do it, game over. So it was possible in 1776, I would say, because George Whitfield had for four decades been preaching up and down the coast of the colonies and in a way bringing about a kind of religious revival so that people were, and this is documented, less inclined uh, toward vice, uh, toward, toward crime, that, that somehow it became part of the culture so that when you combine you know, Locke's ideas and Montesquieu's ideas and everybody's ideas about self-government with people who want to govern themselves, um, you, you have the magic. So uh, Oz Guinness's golden triangle of freedom is that uh, freedom requires virtue, right? But virtue requires faith. It doesn't mean that everybody who's virtuous has faith, but on balance, you have to have a reason to be virtuous. And, and f through history, most of people have said that, well, it's, it's part of my faith that to, to be virtuous. But then faith, in turn, requires freedom. In other words, round and round, because for faith to flourish, you need religious freedom. So religious freedom, I would say, is at the heart of all of this. The founders gambled that we're not going to impose religion. We're going to have freedom of religion. If we impose religion the way they do in England, everybody must be Church of England. Uh, in Greece, everybody must be Greek Orthodox. In France, everybody must be Catholic. We won't do that. We are the first nation in the history of the world to say that we're going to have extremely robust religious freedom and that the state will be agnostic on that issue. The people will decide. The free market of ideas will decide. And by allowing religion to be utterly free, we allow the genius of the market of ideas, the free market of ideas, to work. So people will, by themselves, uh, express their faith. They don't feel that the power or that the authority comes from without, whether from the church or from the state. Uh, and so they will govern themselves. So, so that's ultimately, uh, that's the short version of the secret of self-government. It, it's interesting, we live in a, a lot of Western nations where they're, they're looking to take faith out of the public square, schools, education, yeah. um, out of public debate. But you're suggesting uh, that democracy is built on the idea of faith. There, it, to my mind, there's, there's simply no idea, I mean, there, there's, there's simply no question on that, on that issue. There can be no question. We will find out because the, the reality is that, again, we're talking about free religion. We're not talking about imposed religion. But I think that in, in America in particular, in the West in particular, we have gotten so used to the idea of freedom and democracy and economic prosperity, we take it for granted. We have no idea that if you cut the flower, if you cut the roots, if it's a cut flower, it will continue to look beautiful for a season. But ultimately, it's lost uh, the connection to the source of life. And the fact of the matter is that all of these ideas, caring for the poor, uh, loving your neighbor, self-government, if you trace them backward, it's inevitable that faith comes into play. They're, that's just the way it is. There are people who, in a way, are gambling and saying, we, we simply don't believe it, we don't like it, and we want to get rid of it. I would even argue that not only is that wrong, but it's in the United States, it's unconstitutional because the the people uh, who gave us the Constitution, gave us a form of government, said it will not work unless you allow people not just to think religious thoughts, but to exercise their faith. We wouldn't have had a civil rights movement in America without the churches. They, they weren't just a bunch of, of, of liberal Democrats. Many Democrats were racist. It was the churches, the African 
American churches who felt a calling from God to do what they did. There's no question about that. Jackie Robinson and Rosa Parks, they were all serious Christians. We forget that they were very serious about their faith. Reverend Martin Luther King was serious about his faith. And we forget that the abolitionist movement in this country, Spielberg's movie Amistad, uh, shows the early abolitionist movement in America was incredibly Christian, uh, that th th they were Bible-thumping uh, Methodists uh, who really um, believed that this was God's call to abolish the slave trade. We bought into this crazy idea that somehow people use the Bible to justify slavery. Yeah, hypocrites use the Bible to justify slavery. But, you know, there's, there's no question that faith has played a tremendously positive role in all the things that we now have and, and take for granted. Let me ask you a question about, you've written a book about Bonhoeffer, a book about Wilberforce, seven women, I think seven men. If you're looking across all of those people, what were the traits that made them such great people? Is it, is it something common across those yeah. people? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I call the secret to their greatness is kind of what I was saying about Jesus earlier. It's this idea that they lived not for themselves, but for others. And when I say others, I don't just mean other people, also for God and for a larger idea than themselves, right? So uh, they, they really understood that this is the reason that they're on earth. It, it, it was clear to them. And when somebody lives that way, it, it affects things. I mean, Wilberforce could have been prime minister. Everybody says that he put, uh, he put principle before party and politics. He basically said, I must do what God has called me to do. Whether I'm prime minister is God's business. He did not become prime minister, of course, but he might very, people say that he certainly would have become prime minister. He was so talented. When you see people put God first, they end up putting others first, and they end up living the kind of a life that enables them to do things that they couldn't have done if it had been out of sheer uh, personal ambition. So I would say pretty much everybody in the Seven Women and Seven Men books uh, typify that kind of a life. This series is called Jesus the Game Changer. It's, if I was to ask you, how is Jesus the Game Changer, how would you answer that? Um, how is he the Game Changer? Well, I think until, uh, you know, the Jewish Messiah came into the world, uh, people were waiting for him. And there was this uh, palpable sense that we need the game to be changed. I mean, this, this sense was uh, among the Jews specifically, that we need our Messiah, we long for our Messiah. Now, uh, some of them expected him to come as he did, and recent scholarship has shown that, but I think most didn't. Most expected him to come like a conquering king, like a David. Um, but the point is that God entered human history, and as I say, it's, it's almost like uh, he cheated, because he knew things that only God could know. Uh, so he comes into human history and very, you know, casually introduces these ideas, maybe not so casually, maybe dramatically. But th those ideas changed the history of the world, um, so much that we take for granted. The idea that we should abolish the slave trade, most civilizations would say, why? Might makes right. You have the power. Why would you give up that power? Are you crazy? Why would you give away wealth? Are you insane? The idea about to do those things comes uh, because of the God of Scripture. Now again, those ideas are in the Old Testament, but they're revealed in a new way historically 
through Jesus for all time. I mean, the, the whole idea of, that, that the Jews are the chosen people, it's, it's a tremendous burden. It's not a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful and a terrible thing to be chosen by God to be the vessel through which he brings himself to the entire world, to the Gentiles and the entire world. So Jesus brought the God of the Jews to the ends of the earth. In other words, he opened the door so that the Gentiles could worship the God of the Jews. Um, if you know that the God of the Jews is actually God, if you know that he actually created the universe and loves us and created us in his image, you know that that God would want everyone to know him, not just the Jews, that, that he worked through history. This is the mystery. We don't know why would he work through history? Why wouldn't he just snap his fingers and do it? We don't know. And I will ask him when I get there. But I have to say that uh, it was through his Messiah that he opens the door so that the God of the Jews can reach the, the ends of the earth. And the ramifications of that are infinite. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to begin probably. Uh, what about for you personally? How has Jesus been a game changer for you? Um, until uh, I had my conversion around my 25th birthday, rather miraculously, I've written about it, I was really lost. I, I was not some big sinner. I mean, I was a good kid. Uh, you know, I, I went to a good college. I studied hard. Uh, and, but I didn't know why I was here. I didn't know, did life have meaning? Not just did my life have meaning. Did life have meaning? Or was it just an absurd joke? Were we here by accident? These things troubled me. I was not distracted enough by a good job or success. I was just, you know, these things were just festering. And I, when I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to write. I was really lost. And, but I was not longing for God. I was not, long, if anybody came to me and said, I want to tell you about Jesus, I would run because I said, I know, you know, th those people are crazy and I, I just don't want anything to do with them. But I was in enough pain, I moved back in with my parents, I always joke around that that'll you know, get anybody to take God seriously. I, I moved back in with my parents who are European immigrants and they are, are working class European immigrants and they couldn't understand, well, you, know, you, you went to Yale University and now you're, you're, you're fumbling around, I mean you should have the, you know, the world by its tail and, and, and it was a very painful period for me. And I met a man who starts sharing his faith with me and in a dream, literally about a year later, because I was so skittish about what he was talking about. About a year later, I had a miraculous dream, which as I say, I've written about, but I, I suddenly knew that the Bible is true, God is real, he has a plan for my life, and I can trust him. I don't need to worry about, I better do this or I better do that. I, I, can, I can pray and, and allow him to lead me and guide me, and he actually will. That was the game changer for me, because it, to, to trust him, with my problems, with uh, the, you know, the pace of progress, the pace of my life, my career, whatever. To, to really do that was utterly freeing. It was utterly freeing. And I, I think we all need that kind of sense of freedom. Otherwise, life is just too difficult. And so it, it changed absolutely everything for me. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. It, it changed everything for me. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope it's still changing everything for me uh, every day because I'm not exactly finished, but I, I think that um, my, my sense of what God put me on this earth for, uh, it wouldn't be possible for me to know who I really am unless I trusted God to, to direct me because he knows me better than I know myself. So I never would have, if you'd asked me, do you think you'll write biographies? 
uh, I would say, no, I have no interest in writing biographies. I want to be a fiction writer. Do you think you'll ever write children's books? I have no interest in writing children's books. I, just, I want to be you know, a fiction writer. And all of these things, God has led me on this, this path. Um, I'm sure that I wouldn't have been able to do uh, really almost any of the things that I have done up till now uh, un unless I had completely abandoned myself and my career to Jesus. Uh, I recommend it. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax-deductible and non-tax-deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Holy.